Um, so Merry Christmas. If this is uh, your first time here, we are so glad to have you here. And uh, if you're listening to our podcast this morning, if you're listening to us by podcast, we're uh, very grateful to have you listening to us this morning. Glad that you're joining us. Uh, we've been in a series. In fact, we're in the last week of a series that we've been doing, and it's called uh, Incomparable. And it's from Colossians chapter 1. And we've been looking at this through the entire Advent season. And the reason that we chose Colossians 1 is that it, Colossians 1 gives us the most exalted description of Jesus uh, in all of the Bible. And so we've been looking at that and just kind of trying to focus on Colossians 1 through this Advent season. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with you. If you have access to a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. Let me warn you ahead of time, I've got a really bad cold, so this has every possibility this morning to get really sloppy. So I just want you to, want you to be aware of that from the front end. Um, I suspect that depending upon the family background uh, from which you come, I suspect that it's very likely that on Christmas Day when you're all sitting around as a family and maybe you're sitting around a dinner table or something and you're talking and eating and all of that, uh, I would suspect that one of the best ways to bring conversation in your family to a screeching halt would be to introduce the word sin into the conversation in some way. Most people today really don't like to talk about sin. And frankly, there's some good reasons for that. Words like uh, sinner and then other words that are kind of similar to that, words like heathen and heretic, uh, those kinds of words have been used for centuries to, uh, in the context of religion to exclude and to oppress people. And, it, and they do it, you know, those words are used uh, to oppress people and it happens by dehumanization and depersonalization. And so many modern people really prefer not to use the word sin at all because it seems so... Uh, outdated. It seems so primitive. It seems like such a harsh word. It seems even fundamentalist. And it certainly doesn't seem appropriate, does it, in the context of Christmas when you're thinking about children and presents and twinkling lights around the tree and home and family. It just doesn't seem like the word sin and uh, Christmas really go together, does it? And yet while in no, by no stretch of the imagination am I recommending that you... Uh, suddenly point to your mother-in-law during the Christmas dinner and call her a sinner. Uh, I, I, I'm not suggesting you do that. I would just say that sin, that sin really is the elephant in the room at Christmas time. Uh, even though we might not want to talk about it, it's, it's absolutely impossible to understand the meaning of Christmas without acknowledging the ever-present reality of sin. You just can't understand Christmas without getting that. The Christmas event answers Two very important questions. The first question that it answers is, how did God come to earth? And the answer to that question that Christianity gives is the word incarnation. And what incarnation means is just simply that God became physical. He became a human being. Okay? But Christmas also answers a second question. And that, that question is, why did God come to earth? So it's not just how did God come to earth, it's why did God come to the earth? And the answer to that question is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. He came to reconcile with humanity. And at the end of the service, we're going to sing about that, in a song that many of you are familiar with. It's, you know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And, and there's this little line in it where it says, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners, what is, what's the word? Reconciled. That, that's the 
that's the second question that Christmas answers. Why did God have to come to the earth? And it was for the purpose of reconciliation. Now, I don't want you to be thrown off by that word uh, reconciled because that's, that's a word that you really are more familiar with probably than you think that you are. Like, like if, it's used often in the culture, like if a celebrity couple has been having major problems and maybe they separated. And then they get back together. Entertainment news, if you ever watch entertainment news, it'll often say to you, it'll often tell us that that couple, whatever their names are, that they've reconciled, meaning that there was a conflict between them, right? And uh, all of a sudden, even though their relationship was broken for a while, they've worked it out and they've become reconciled. They're no longer separated. They're, they're back together. Well, in the same way, Colossians 1 is going to tell us that God came to the earth in the person of Jesus for the purpose of reconciliation. But the reason that the reconciliation is even needed is because of this word that many people would rather avoid, certainly at Christmas time, but I think even during the rest of the year, a lot of people would probably consider this word to be uh, unprogressive. Maybe they would even consider it to be unevolved. But it's the word sin. It's the word sin. And it's central to understanding the celebration that is Christmas. So here's what I want to do. Let's start reading from verse 19 this morning. Chapter 1, we're going to start reading from verse 19, and then we'll break this down. But let's read it uh, first. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Now, we looked at that last week, and we said that that word fullness, what it's referring to is is it's saying that Jesus was fully God. He was also fully man, But he was also fully God. He was not a created being. He was preexistent. He's eternal. He is God. All of God is in him and was in him. He was God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to, there's the word, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And he says, once you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has, there's the word again, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from that, from accusation. And we're going to stop there. Now here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to break this passage down this morning into uh, three parts. And here's, here are the parts. Uh, the first is, Uh, The need for reconciliation, which we'll talk about in just a moment. The need for reconciliation. The second part that we'll move to is the method of reconciliation. And then finally, we're going to look at the results of reconciliation. So we're going to start with the need for reconciliation, the method of reconciliation, and then the results of reconciliation. Let's start with the need for reconciliation. Twice this passage speaks to the need for reconciliation. And you saw it in the verses. Once is is in verse 19, and and then it was also in verse uh, 22. Verse 19, through him to reconcile to himself all things. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you. Now, the use of the word reconciliation here implies a broken relationship, right? I mean, you don't use the word reconcile unless you're talking about a broken relationship. Imagine you see a couple walking down the street and they're holding hands and they're laughing and they're talking with one another and they're getting along famously. You wouldn't use the word reconciliation in the context of their relationship, right? You wouldn't say that they need to reconcile with one another because they're together. Everything's everything's great, okay? But I want you to imagine for a moment that you see them suddenly stop 
and they turn and they face each other and their voices just get angry and they start shouting at each other and suddenly she runs off in the opposite direction crying. That's when you would say, uh, uh-oh, uh, there's a problem. They need to reconcile, right? Because they're, they're split apart. And the only question would be, whose fault was it that it happened? Was it his fault? Did he say something stupid that he shouldn't have said? Did he say like, I, you know, I, did he say, uh, hey, honey, for Christmas, I got you a membership to Bob's gym so that you could drop a few pounds. I've been thinking you needed to do that. Did he say that and that upset her, make her angry? Did she misunderstand something that he, he said? Or were they both a part of the problem? Was, you know, was it his fault, her fault, or both fault? That's really the only issue. You just need to know, you just know they need to reconcile, right? Well, the text makes it clear here in this particular passage that the fault in the rift between humanity and God is clearly one-sided. It's all on us as human beings. It's all on me individually. It's all on you individually. Every single one of us. The text says in verse 21, it says, once you were alienated from God. I don't mean one time that you were alienated from God. It means, it means, during, it means that until you come to Christ, you were alienated from God. And you were enemies in your minds because of, and I, and I kind of gave you a little translation there. A better translation is as shown by your evil behavior. What I want you to see is that the text leaves no question as to who's at fault. It's humanity. God, God has no fault in this broken relationship whatsoever. It's all on us. It's my fault and it's your fault. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but in verse 21, there is a progression that is described. And it starts with, I want you to get this because this, this is very important that you understand this. Uh, it starts with the idea that you were alienated from God. Did you see that? It says, once you were alienated from God, okay? And you say, well, when, 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 when was I alienated from God? And the answer to that question is from birth. Uh, you were alienated from God from the time that you were born. And you need to understand that the Bible is very consistent about this. Every person born into the world is born alienated from God. Did you know that? And you ask, well, how, how can that possibly be? Well, here's the, where the word that seems so unchristmassy comes in. We have inherited from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, what the Bible often refers to as a sin nature. In other words, uh, we, have, uh, we have inherited from Adam and Eve a core disposition in us to want to be Self-determinate creatures. Uh, in other words, we don't want an external transcendent God telling us what we're supposed to do and when and what's right and what's wrong. We want to make those decisions for ourselves. We want to be our own gods. We hate the idea of an external trans, uh, transcendent God. Every single one of us. It's our core disposition. In fact, Ephesians 2 even says it this way. It says, it says that you were by nature uh, objects of wrath. Okay? So in your very nature, from the moment that you were born, you, there was this thing in you that, that wanted to be your own God so that you are automatically alienated from the God who actually is God. Okay. Now, here's the, so it starts with alienation 
from God. And then it moves. There's something else that it says. It says that you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds. So it starts with, it starts with alienation from God and then it moves to hostility of mind. Okay? So the alienation results in hostility of mind. In other words, your mind is corrupted so that all it thinks about is your own agenda and your own desires and your own plans for life rather than God's plans for your life. So alienation leads to hostility of mind, and then that results in, the final stage of that, is evil behavior. Okay, it says, it says that you were alienated from God uh, and were enemies in your minds, as shown by your evil behavior. Now, listen to me. Be very careful here by what you think about when you think about evil behavior. Because I think what naturally most of you guys think about are things like, uh, you know, drugs and uh, drunkenness and uh, sexual sin and adultery, you know, whatever. Those are the, probably the kinds of things that you think about when you think about evil behavior. When you, when you read that word, that's what you think. And that is a form of evil behavior, but I want you to remember that the Bible also teaches in Isaiah 64, it says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. You get that? Now you see, some of you, some of you, because of the family that you were born into, you might have been a very good kid growing up. Maybe you didn't get into some of the destructive things that your friends got into. You went to church, you know, you got good grades, you obeyed your parents, maybe you taught Sunday school, you didn't, you know, you didn't sleep around, whatever. Remarkably, the Bible says that all of that good behavior, all of that righteousness was even evil. Does that blow your mind? All of that righteousness was even evil because it was done for yourself and your own agenda. It wasn't done out of love for Christ. Uh, it was done perhaps out of a fear of disobeying your parents. Maybe it was done out of the desire for approval from others who were important to you. Maybe it was because of the desire to build a resume for your, for your future. Maybe it was even the desire to earn God's approval. But the Bible says that all of that was still evil because it wasn't done out of love for Christ. Yeah, you were being a good kid. Yes, it was socially acceptable, but it wasn't about love for Christ. And the Bible says that all of that, yeah, drugs and adultery and all that, that's all evil, but so was all of the righteous stuff that you were trying to do for your own purposes. That was evil too. And so the reason that reconciliation is needed, the reason that the Bible says that you were alienated from God uh, is because of that evil behavior. And the, that is called sin. And so the reason that reconciliation is needed between you and God, between man and God, is because we've inherited from Adam and Eve this sin nature, this disposition to be our own gods that ultimately results in sinful behavior. Whether it's societally considered good behavior or bad behavior, it's all still evil in front of God. This is why Christ came to earth. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Christ came to reconcile us to God because our sin, your sin, my sin, every person here's sin alienated us from God. I want you to understand 
that that's the condition that we come into the world unless something changes. That's where everyone is. Okay, now this is where I want to move into the second point. We've been talking about the need for reconciliation. Let's move into the second point on the method of reconciliation because this is important for you to get to. And I know I, you guys, I say this a lot. I know I say this a lot. You could take that slide down for just a moment. Let me just say something here. You guys, um, I repeat there are certain things I repeat over and over, and I don't, I'm not repeating them. I'm, not, I'm aware that I'm repeating them. I'm, I hope I'm not boring you by repeating them, but I want you to understand some things that are critical when it comes to understanding Christianity and differentiating Christianity from all other religions. Because you know what? A lot of people will say, well, all religions are basically the same. No, they're not. And let me tell you, the thing about Christianity that is distinct from all the others is that when it comes to this issue of reconciliation, Every other religion in the world would say, yeah, you, you need to be reconciled to God. They would say, yeah, there's a problem between you and God. He's holy, you're not. They would all say that. But where every other religion would be different is that they would all say that in order for you to be reconciled to God, you need to go clean up your life. And they would say, obey our rules, whatever that religion's rules are. They'd say, obey our rules and don't get out of the rules and you might just pay off the debt before you die. That's what every other religion would say. But I want you to notice the difference with the message of Christianity. Go back to verse 19. Okay, now you can put that slide back up. Go, go back to verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, to reconcile to himself... All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Two things that I want you to see now with respect to what Christianity teaches about the method of reconciliation that is so different from every other religion in the world. Here's the first. I want you to notice. Did you see that the initiator of the action in these verses, did you notice who the initiator of the action is in these verses? Is it you? No. In each of those verses, the initiator is God. And this is one of the things that, that the Bible is also very consistent about. It's not only consistent about the idea that we're all born into the world sinners, but it's also consistent about the idea that God is the initiator when it comes to reconciliation. The God of Christianity isn't like the other gods of all of the other world religions. He doesn't wait for you to clean up your act. He cleans up your act for you. He has reconciled you. The one who was offended takes the initiative to restore the relationship. That's very unique. No other world religion is like that. And then I want you to notice too, second, that Paul says that the method of reconciliation was the physical death of the Messiah on the cross. His blood had to be shed for your sins. If you ever think, well, look, my sins are no big deal. I'm, it's not that big of a deal, the stuff I've done. Yeah, it's wrong, but I'm not that bad of a sinner. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says that your sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross. His blood had to be shed. He paid the penalty that we owed. He took on our sins. 
And this is why you can't understand the meaning of Christmas without understanding the idea of sin. The reason that Jesus came to earth, the reason that he was born into a manger, wasn't because he wanted a vacation from heaven. Um, it wasn't because he wanted to take a sightseeing tour of earth. Uh, it also wasn't, understand this, get this, hear the significance of this. He also didn't come to earth to become our example for how to live. He did not come for that purpose, to be an example. He came to be a substitute for you and me. He came to die the death that we deserved because of our sin and because of our sins. That's why he came to earth. That's the method of reconciliation. Now, I, I can imagine that there are some of you here this morning that may, I can imagine some of you are offended by hearing that. You, you, came, you came today on the Sunday before Christmas. You, want, you came, you wanted to get a nice, warm, feel-good Christmas talk, and you get me talking about sin and blood and the cross and death. And the idea that you've ever done anything in your life worthy of the death of Jesus is just plain offensive to you. You say to yourself, look, I'm not that bad. I, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm really a pretty good person. I got to tell you something. And this, it's, it's my job to tell you this. And it's more than my job. It's my calling from heaven to tell you this. And I want you to know, I tell you the same thing that I would tell myself about this. Jesus says that if you think that you're a pretty good person and that you're not that bad and that your sins couldn't possibly be enough to have caused Jesus to die on the cross, if that's how you feel, if that's what you think, the Bible says that you are far from the kingdom of God. Yeah, you. On the other hand, if there's anyone here who says, oh man, I'm so unworthy. I am so unfit. You know, you really don't have any idea what I've done. I have failed in so many ways. God says, you are actually near the kingdom of God. That kind of attitude is actually closer to the kingdom of God than the kind of attitude that says, ah, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, all my life, I've really been very religious. I've been a pretty good person. Nothing I did could cause Jesus to have to die on a cross. Jesus says that it's counterintuitive. This person who admits how broken they are, they're actually close to the kingdom of God. And this person is actually far, far away. It's counterintuitive. If you think you're near, you're far. If you think you're far, you're near. That's, that's the gospel. Here, here's, the, here's the truth. We all need reconciliation because all of us have sinned. Some of us have sinned in socially acceptable ways. And some of us have sinned in ways that aren't very socially acceptable. But the reality is that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way that reconciliation can occur for any of us whether your sins were more socially acceptable or less socially acceptable. That's the method 
of reconciliation. There is no other method. If you think, well, I could live a good enough life. If I could just clean up my... No, that, that, sorry, that won't work. If that, if that would work, Jesus would have never died on the cross. I mean, he's not an idiot. He wouldn't have hung on a cross and suffered death on a cross if you could do it some other way. The method of reconciliation was the cross of Jesus, his blood shed, his body broken on the cross for you and me. And so you're born into this world alienated from God. God says, I'll solve that for you. I will reconcile with you. I want you to be reconciled to me. I will, in the form of Jesus, hang on a cross and die for your sins. The question is, what will you do with it? Will you accept it? Will you not? You've got to come to a place in your life where you say, I believe that Christ died on the cross for my sins. Lord Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Savior. And if you don't do that, then you're still in this position that the Bible describes as being alienated from God, needing to be reconciled, but not reconciled. This is what this passage is teaching us. So he looked at the need for reconciliation. It's, it's because of sin. The method of reconciliation is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came to earth. This is why he was born into that manger. And then last, I want you to look at this. The results of reconciliation. There are some radical results of reconciliation. And they're better news than you can imagine. Um, there are really two of them that I want to talk about. And, and because of time here, all I can do is just uh, show you the ramifications of these. There's a radical individual result of reconciliation, and there is a radical cosmic result, which shouldn't surprise some of you, because we talked about this last week, that Jesus Christ is the cosmic king of the universe, okay? Let's talk, let's talk about the radical individual result. In verse 22, it says, it says that as a result of the reconciliation that comes through Christ's death on the cross, it says, you are now holy in his sight without blemish. And free from accusation. Now, I, I want to tell you, if you were to just spend some time today meditating on what that says, I'm telling you there would be a joy and a confidence in your life that nothing could extinguish. Holy in his sight, as a result of the death of Christ on the cross, you are made holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Now, very practically, what that means is that for those who accept Jesus Christ... And his death on the cross for their sins. Very practically what this means is that suddenly you become beautiful to, to him. You become beautiful to God. Like when you move from that point, that stage of being alienated from God to that stage of I accept Christ and I'm in him now. The Bible says that that you become beautiful to God. Like he doesn't see the sin anymore. He sees, he sees you. And all of those words really, I mean, if you sum it up, it means very practically speaking that you're beautiful to him. Like if, you're, if you've ever listened to some soprano hit, hit a high note and you say, oh my gosh, how beautiful that is. Or like if you've, if you've ever looked at a seascape uh, or a painting or, or a piece of art and you go, oh my goodness, how beautiful that is. You know how your heart leaps? You know how it just, it kind of just leaps up a little bit when you see something like that? You know how, how it's like a delight happens, how it kind of just, it takes your breath away. Maybe it even kind of buckles you at your knees a little. 
What this is saying is that in Christ, we take God's breath away. Like, like right now, he finds us that beautiful. He loves us like that. And I'm going to tell you that's astonishing. And I would tell you too, there's no other religion that even tries to say something like that. Uh, you know what? You can reject Christianity by saying, you could, you could say, you could say, man, that is, that is way too good to be true. I, I can really respect uh, people who doubt Christianity when they say that's, that's just too good to be true. It's too much. That's too, it's too wonderful. I, I can respect that. But, but when, when someone says, oh, this is, this is too terrible. This is too primitive. This is too awful. This is too negative. This talk about sin and blood and cross and death and all that stuff. I, I, you know, they just don't get it yet. Holy and blameless. Uh, he finds us beautiful. He finds us presentable. He finds us, pr- he's, he's proud of us. When you open the New Testament, um, very first chapter of the New Testament is, uh, it's, it's the genealogy of Jesus. And it's, look, it's not very interesting reading. I will grant you that. You know, you're just like reading along and it's like, you know, he's the son of this, the son of that, and the son of this, the son of that person. And it's, it's kind of boring to read. It really is. But if you study that genealogy, it is fascinating because you've got these names in there of people from the Old Testament that you would never expect to be in the genealogy of Jesus. People like Tamar. Tamar was an incest survivor. You've got Bathsheba. Bathsheba was an adulteress. You've got uh, Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. You've got Ruth, who was a Gentile pagan. And the question is, why are all those people included in Jesus' genealogy? The answer is that they're Jesus' family. They're the people that he's proud of. That's why they've been included, because Jesus is proud of those people. They're part of his family. What it means is that if you come to God in Christ, if you're no longer in the state of alienation and you say, Lord Jesus, uh, be my Savior, it, it says it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done. You can be a part of Jesus' family, and he's proud of you. And his love and his grace abound over you. It means that you're absolutely free from accusation before God. That's the individual result of reconciliation. And that's pretty cool, huh? But I have to point out also, as we close here, that that Christmas, the, the fact that God became human and became physical, it, it implies strongly that the reconciliation affected by God through Christ on earth is not, is not, didn't happen just to help you individually and spiritually. Because the text says, back in verse 19, it says, notice this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself, what does it say? All things, whether things on earth or things that have all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, that's another whole sermon, of course, but let me, just, let me just remind you of this. The whole idea behind Christmas, the idea that God would become flesh, which, by the way, no other religion would ever grant that idea. Only Christianity would do that. The whole idea behind Christmas, that God would permanently inhabit a human body, means that God is not out simply to take your poor little soul, which is falling apart and put it together, But it means that God was also taking the entire universe which is falling apart and putting it back together again. The universe is falling apart, 
right? That's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is falling apart. You and I are falling apart. Time is out of joint. Nature is out of joint. Bodies are out of joint. Everything is falling apart. But the reconciliation in Jesus Christ means that someday he's bringing it all together again. Everything will be healed. Everyone will be healed. Everything will be brought together. Everything will come together because Jesus, the cosmic king, has reconciled it all to himself through the cross. And so in a very real sense, our celebration of the birth of Christ and his first advent also anticipates his second advent that is still to come one day in the future. This Christmas, I want to challenge you to let the glory of Christmas take hold of you as you celebrate the birth of the cosmic king through whom the reconciliation of all things is made possible. The incomparable king of kings, the Lord and savior of the universe, the incomparable Christ Jesus. Where are you? This Christmas, are you alienated from God or has something changed and you're now in Christ? For some of you, the very best Christmas gift that you could give, that you could give God, that you could give yourself this Christmas would be to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. to move from the position of being alienated from God to being in Christ. And you do that by just saying, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I believe that the only way for my sin issue to be dealt with is your blood and your death on the cross. Be my Savior today. I'd like to ask you to just bow your heads with me this morning and Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we, we celebrate your birth and we recognize that it is, that the reason that you had to be born into this world is the issue of sin. And Lord Jesus Christ, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And Lord Jesus Christ, I recognize that apart from your death on the cross, there's not a single thing that I could have ever done to bridge the gap, to reconcile myself to God. It had to be you. And I thank you for that. Lord, for those that are in the room this morning that have never come to a place where they have recognized that, maybe they've never heard it before. Maybe they've never understood it before. I pray that your spirit would drive that truth home to them today. And that perhaps they would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for for them. The only method of reconciliation in the world. Lord, for all of us, I pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year, that we would understand the significance of you, the cosmic king, being born. And that we would anticipate that day that you bring everything together again, that everything will be healed. It will all be as it should be. And we thank you for that truth, Lord Jesus. 
We worship you as the incomparable King of kings. 